If you have any information about the disappearance of Alicia Navarro, please call the Glendale, Arizona Police Department at 623-930-3000, the Anti-Predator Project, at 305-796-4859. Or you can email me, Alyssa Fleck, at gonefromglendale at gmail.com. If you think you see Alicia, please call 911 immediately. This is Gone from Glendale, Episode 4. I'll be back, I swear. I'm watching a video clip of Alicia on my computer. Jessica posted this clip of Alicia to Facebook in 2017, two years before Alicia went missing. In the video, Alicia is sitting with her knees tucked under her on a big burgundy faux leather couch. Her hair is pulled back in a long ponytail, and she's totally engrossed in the music coming out of an iPad that's resting on the arm of the couch. She's bobbing her head along to the music as she hums and sings. The way you sing when it's just you and the music, and you don't care about how you sound. A few times, Alicia looks up and notices Jessica watching her. After a few seconds, Alicia hops up. We can see she's wearing leggings and an Angry Birds t-shirt, and she playfully prompts her mother to stop the recording. It's hard to find audio clips of Alicia Navarro, who was 14 years old when she disappeared, but would be 18 today. I wish I had them, because knowing what Alicia sounds like and her mannerisms in real life would be useful to those looking for her, and because it would help me learn and understand more about her. But even though Alicia spent countless hours online, she wasn't the type to post selfies or videos of herself. Alicia's trust and an entry into her world have to be carefully earned. In person, Alicia is shy and quiet, even around family members, until you spend time with her and get to know her and she warms up to you. But with some people, she never opens up at all. This is how her online gamer friend, Clark Samples, described her when I interviewed him for this podcast. Every single match, she was just very, very sweet. She was always a super helpful player in those matches. She always, like, did awesome, you know. So I was like, hey, this might be somebody who's cool to invite. And I had no idea that she was going to be as awesome as she was. It's like, usually when you're playing these games, you don't put like a name or a face or like a voice to these usernames, you know? You kind of just go, oh, this person's good at the game. I'll say hi, you know? Clark was 19 or 20 and Alicia just 12 or 13 when they met playing Overwatch in 2017. At first, Alicia barely spoke to the other players, but as she got more comfortable with Clark and their mutual friends, 
He told me she was often the loudest in the room during their Xbox Live parties. Clark described Alicia's personality as both sweet and awesome, but didn't get too much more specific about what she liked to talk about. I do know that Clark describes Alicia as one of his best friends during this period, and that for a while, at least, they were talking daily, when they woke up in the morning, before going to bed at night, and even during school. To recap what else I learned from Clark, well, he first told me that he learned Alicia was missing from a call from his father, and then a visit from FBI agents at his door. They collected Clark's electronics, but not all of them, and admitted they weren't sure how to work his Xbox when they returned the devices. I first reached out to Clark's samples back in 2020, and at that time he shared with me a few message exchanges between he and Alicia. He even admitted that at times he'd been flirtatious with her despite the age difference. And while he said they may have at some point talked about the possibility of all someday meeting up at a Comic-Con in the future, they'd never had any plans to go real life. Clark told me that he'd be open to answering any of my future questions, and I think at some point I'll definitely want to follow up with him. Some of Alicia's other friends have been less forthcoming. In 2020, I messaged one of Alicia's friends that she was supposedly dating a few weeks before she disappeared. I messaged him on Instagram, and he never responded to me. I'm going to call him Jack. I'm not using his real name because as far as I know, he's still a minor. I can't message him on Instagram anymore, and I see that he has a new girlfriend now. He's one of the two guys that Alicia was dating in the weeks leading up to her disappearance, who supposedly dumped her when he found out she was also seeing a new guy from Borgotti. She went with Jack to Metro Center Mall, and he's one of the friends who allegedly saw her with a burner phone. He's also one of the friends who said she talked about running away. When I tried to talk to the rest of Alicia's friends in 2020, this is more than a year after she'd gone missing, it went pretty badly, and I haven't tried contacting them again, except to send them the link to this podcast and ask them to reach out if they want to talk about Alicia. When I asked Trent in my interview for episode two if he thought Alicia's boyfriends could have had anything to do with her disappearance, he declined to comment besides saying that they had been questioned extensively. I can't really comment on that because that's still part of the active uh, investigation stuff. Um, but I can tell you that uh, law enforcement and us have spoken with everybody, uh, but I can't really get into that whole theory. Because I know there's a lot of people out in the, the interweb, so to speak, that have lots of theories about that as well. But, you know, unfortunately, I just can't comment on that at the moment. So could one or both of the boys have set up some kind of trap to get Alicia back? And it went wrong. I know some of the friends that have been less than helpful and forthcoming be trying to help Alicia in some way. I completely understand not being entitled to information from Alicia's friends. Because they wouldn't talk to me beyond saying they didn't want to talk, this is my assessment. Alicia had probably told a lot of people some part of her plan that she planned to go somewhere but maybe not a complete picture, and maybe they didn't believe her. Or maybe they believed she had a reason to leave and they wanted to support her. 
At least one friend told me in 2020 he believes Alicia is still alive out there somewhere. Another implied she felt a bit guilty about Alicia's departure, but mostly she was just really mad at me for contacting her. I felt bad, so I left it alone after that. I discovered in the news a disturbing trend of attempted kidnappings or abductions around the Glendale area in the months leading up to Alicia's disappearance. In previous episodes, I've mentioned women disappearing from a stretch called The Blade in Phoenix, which is popular with sex workers and transients, and I've talked generally about the violence in the area, but these attempted abductions are especially disturbing and specific, and they were happening right in Glendale. It's a different MO than luring a child online, but sexual predators who attempt to lure children online could also commit crimes of opportunity. I want to note here that I'm not trying to portray Glendale, Arizona as some terrible, violent place full of sex offenders and human traffickers. I've been to Glendale, and it's stunningly beautiful, with many great aspects, and tons of families who are minding their own business, doing their best, and trying to live their own American dream. Glendale is the antique capital of Arizona, which is pretty cool, too. The people there are very kind and genuine. Like all of Arizona, Glendale is very geographically spread out. There are some parts of metropolitan Phoenix that are more out in the suburbs, and some of the attempted kidnappings in Glendale were still 10 or 11 miles from Alicia's house. The closest attempted abduction I could find in 2019 was within four miles. So I'm not trying to portray Alicia's neighborhood as a den of gang activity, because that's simply not true though I understand how it could sound that way from selective reporting. Of course, we don't report on all the good things that happen in certain places. Over the span of one month in 2019, there were five attempted kidnappings in Phoenix, and they continued at a similar pace throughout the year. The Glendale, Arizona Police Department said that a man grabbed a 15-year-old girl from behind in the area of 67th and Maryland Avenues in West Valley around 11 a.m. on May 7, 2019. The man grabbed the girl as she was loading something into her mother's vehicle and dragged her to a nearby alley while telling her, shut up or I will kill you. The girl was able to kick and fight off the suspect who fled from the scene. The suspect was described as a man in his 30s who had a scar on his upper right forehead and had his left eyebrow partially shaved. He was about 5 foot 9 and weighed about 180 pounds. The man was wearing a short-sleeved shirt and blue jeans with a hole in the knee. Three men allegedly attempted to lure children from Westwood Elementary School in Phoenix between March 26th and April 16th of 2019. Another man allegedly attempted to kidnap an 11-year-old girl while she was walking to school near Morningside Drive and 22nd Avenue around 7.30 a.m. on April 3rd. An armed witness saw the incident and told the suspect to leave the girl alone. The man ran away after the witness pulled his gun out and pointed it at him. According to police, the incident was reported several days after it occurred, and Phoenix police started canvassing the area looking for the kidnapper. The attempted kidnapping happened just west of Village Meadows Elementary School, 
The school district sent home a letter to parents following the incident. Another man attempted to kidnap an 11-year-old girl on her bike in the area of 19th Avenue and Union Hills Drive. On a Tuesday morning in August 2019, a 13-year-old girl was waiting for a school bus at 63rd Avenue and Golden Lane in Glendale when she saw a man sitting in a white car in a nearby parking lot. He approached the girl and asked if she had a boyfriend before grabbing her hand and waist. The girl was able to get away. The suspect was described as having short, black, curly hair and was wearing a dark gray t-shirt and white tennis shoes. Police said he was 5 foot 10 inches tall and weighed 200 pounds. The headlines in the local news from this time period are full of these incidents, and no indication if they ever caught any of the attempted abductors. When I looked into the registered sex offenders in the area of Alicia's home on West Rose Lane, I found there was a sex offender who was on the run from a nearby halfway house. I also found six non-compliant registered sex offenders who had been at some point living in the vicinity, meaning their last known addresses might have been in the area, but they had since absconded and were no longer checking in with their parole officers. When we think about all the violence and attempted abductions taking place nearby, it can seem overwhelming the number of possibilities of what could have happened to Alicia. The mind starts to wander down endless rabbit holes. In this episode, I'll be going back through the narrative of Alicia's case as it unfurled through portions of the police report to get a sense of the Glendale police response to Alicia's case. I want to address some of the language in the police case file about Alicia because I'm going to be going through the case file and using their language in many cases. But some of the verbiage is ignorant when talking about a person with autism, and so I want to address this up front. People who have autism and those who are respected in the research community would describe Alicia's condition as autism with low support needs, rather than describing her as high-functioning. The functioning language is considered outdated. Those who would previously have been called low-functioning autistic people are referred to as having high support needs. This just describes the level of assistance they may need with certain but not necessarily all day-to-day tasks. To anyone who meets Alicia, it would not immediately be evident that she has autism. Alicia can speak and communicate like anybody else. She also has autism. I have reached out to the Glendale Police Department to ask them about this case, and I have not yet heard back, but I will keep trying. The case was first assigned to Mario Sanchez, but as the case started to go cold, it was passed to Officer Travis Darby of the Cold Case Unit. Looking at the police report I have access to, which I know is not the complete police report, a lot of officers have had Alicia's case cross their desk, but the number of officers who have imprinted on it could be misleading. The case is full of single-page supplemental reports, and an officer's name is added for every single tip or sighting even if the report is created, just to take a phone call and add that tip to the report. At 10.29 a.m. on September 15, 2019, Glendale Police Officer M. Robinson responded to a 911 call at a house on West Rose Lane. The call came in for a missing juvenile. Specifically, the caller said a high-functioning autistic girl was missing. 
When Robinson pulled up to the small ranch house on West Rose Lane, he was met at the door by Jessica Nunez, who was visibly upset. Jessica told Officer Robinson that she and her husband fell asleep around 2 a.m. or 2.30 and woke up around 6 to make breakfast. Jessica told Officer Robinson she'd noticed the back door was open and began talking to her husband about it. She was worried and had him check the kids' room and that they noticed that Alicia was missing from her bedroom. They then told Officer Robinson her cell phone and laptop were gone as well. The officer asked Jessica if there'd been any recent changes that would make Alicia run away. And Jessica couldn't think of any. She said Alicia had not been in trouble or acting differently. She'd even gone to the mall last weekend with her friends and recently went to a quinceanera. This level of socialization was unusual for Alicia, who'd been making more of an effort recently. Jessica went on to tell Officer Robinson about Alicia's four closest friends, one of them being that new friend from Borgatti Catholic High School. Jessica had already called several of the parents of Alicia's friends, and none of them had any leads on where she might be. While Officer Robinson was still there, Jessica started calling those friends on speakerphone. It was at that point that Jessica called Jack, and he admitted that he'd found out a few days ago that Alicia had been dating both him and that friend from Borgotti, who's new to the group of friends, and so he broke up with her just a few days ago. This was news to Jessica, who hadn't been aware that her daughter was dating anyone. Jessica told the officer that Alicia does not really use social media, but she is an online gamer. Jessica had already asked the cell phone carrier to ping the phone, and they had already declined to do so. Over speakerphone, Alicia's friends began to tell stories to Jessica about how over the past few weeks Alicia had been talking about the potential of swimming to Australia or walking to California. Then Jessica took the officer into the backyard and showed him the stacked items Alicia used to get over the fence, as well as the shoe prints in the dirt from her shoe pattern. Officer Robinson promptly entered Alicia into NCIC as a missing juvenile. At that point, Officer Robinson got the addresses of Alicia's friends and started responding to them individually to speak with them in person. He first went to one of Alicia's girlfriend's residence. That friend told Officer Robinson that she last spoke with Alicia on Thursday before she disappeared. The friend said that Alicia had made comments about possibly running away to Australia. She also confirmed that Alicia had been dating both Jack and the other boy prior to this and that the boys had broken up with her. Jack told the officer Alicia had mentioned running away to California or Australia, but beyond that, he had nothing to add. The officer then visited a third friend, the other boy Alicia had recently been dating, the one from Bergotti. Going forward, I'm going to call this boy Cody. He told the officer he'd last spoken to Alicia via an app on Thursday. He also mentioned that she was thinking of running away to California or Australia. Cody, which again is not his real name, is no longer a minor. He was already a junior in Bergotti at the time that Alicia met him and disappeared. He has since graduated from high school and gone on to college. Per the police reports, all three of the friends visited by the officer that day, two of whom Alicia had allegedly been dating just days earlier, 
gave the same story about California and Australia, respectively. The morning Alicia disappeared, Jessica called her biological father in Florida to tell him what was going on. She told Officer Robinson that Alicia does not talk to her father. Then at 2.25, Jessica called back to report that she'd found the runaway note on Alicia's gaming computer. The Monday after Alicia was found missing, September 16th, Jessica called the Glendale police first thing in the morning to give them more information. She told the officer who took the call that she was in the process of attempting to view the neighbor's surveillance camera next door. She then called back later to tell the police she had video showing two white cars after 3 a.m. on her street and her side lights turning on just after 3.30 the video was obtained and uploaded to evidence.com. Unless this was a mistake, it sounds like pretty clear evidence that there were white cars on the street that night, whether or not they were related to Alicia's disappearance. Jessica also told the officer that one of Alicia's friends informed her that Alicia has Uber on her phone. But Jessica saw that her bank account had no activity so Alicia could not be using that account for Uber. At this point, Jessica also informed the officer that Alicia has braces, may be wearing a white sweater, and could also be wearing white-colored denim skirt overalls. She figured this due to Alicia having few outfits that she liked to wear. Jessica also told the officer that Alicia might be wearing black and white high-top bands. I want to note here that I don't know if this was done or not, or how difficult it would be to investigate and obtain the relevant data, but if Alicia was using Uber, as her friends allegedly told Jessica the day she disappeared, police should have been able to find Uber user data for trips that night in her neighborhood. Whether Alicia got into an Uber that night or not, I'd be very interested to see the Uber data from her neighborhood between 3 and 4 a.m. When I follow up with police, I'm definitely going to ask them about this. If Alicia had a burner phone with Uber on it, it could have been linked to somebody else's bank account. Even if the iPhone she took with her had Uber on it, it could have been linked to someone else's bank account, and her mother would have no way to know that Alicia was using Uber. As early as four days after she disappeared, tips and sightings began flooding in. By this point, Alicia's face had been plastered all over the local news. Some of these tips I'm going to skim over because I'm not sure they add any real value, and it's impossible to judge their credibility. There were so many one-off possible sightings, many of them redacted in the police case file, that either could not have been Alicia, or just came days too late. On September 19th came that sighting from La Pradera Park, the one just a few miles from Alicia's house. Jessica called the police to report that a sibling of one of Alicia's friends had seen a girl in the park at 3900 West Glendale, that's La Pradera, that they believed was Alicia, at approximately 11 a.m. that morning the 19th. The kid told Jessica that Alicia was with a tall black male with tattoos on his face and arms. She had no other information. 
Jessica said that this person is very familiar with Alicia and knows that it was her for sure. According to the police report, she said that this caused her to go to the park to search for her daughter. At the park, she met up with a transient who said she'd seen Alicia walking alone in the park and that she'd gone into the bathroom. Another transient told Jessica she saw Alicia at the Peter Piper Pizza with a tall black male with tattoos around 9 p.m. on the 18th, three days after Alicia disappeared. Jessica said both transients told her that Alicia looked to be out of it. They described someone who could be on some kind of drug. Jessica stayed at the park for hours and walked the surrounding area handing out flyers, trying to find Alicia. At this point in the police report, the officer writes, I asked if Alicia was a runaway and did not want to come home, or if she was missing. Even though the officer who took this particular report may not have been familiar with Alicia's case up to that point, I can imagine Jessica's frustration at being asked that question at this point in the investigation. Jessica replied that Alicia is autistic and not taking her medications, and that she ran away from home. She said she does not know who the black male is, and Alicia does not have any friends or family in that area. Jessica did say that Alicia knows the area of 43rd Avenue in Glendale, and that the park is near there. The last place Alicia was allegedly seen was entering the bathroom at the park on September 19, 2019. Jessica told the officer she'd continue to check the area and hand out flyers. Years later, Jessica has told me that sighting could have been a mistaken false lead. Although multiple people, according to the police report, claimed to have seen the black male with tattoos with Alicia. So was it Alicia with the man or just a girl who looked like her? Based on that alleged sighting, the public was on the hunt for an African-American male with facial tattoos, whether or not it was even relevant to this case. A string of attempted abductions in Glendale and Phoenix throughout 2019. A dozen absconding sex offenders. A possible sighting of Alicia with a black male that was repeated by at least two separate witnesses who had not interacted. And the possibility of two white cars driving down Alicia's street that night. Not to mention the question of whether or not Alicia had access to Uber. This episode has brought up a lot of new information while leaving past questions still unanswered. In the next and future episodes, I'll work to keep tying up loose ends. I'll continue with the police file, and I will entertain whatever new questions or information arises while continuing to try to speak to everyone in Alicia Navarro's orbit. Thank you for listening. If you have any information about the disappearance of Alicia Navarro, please call the Glendale, Arizona Police Department at 623-930-3000, the Anti-Predator Project, at 305-796-4859, or you can email me, Alyssa Fleck, at gonefromglendale at gmail.com. If you think you see Alicia, please call 911 immediately.